0: Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Romans chapter three. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Uh, As I said last week, we're doing a study in the book of Acts. And as we go through this book, we are departing and studying the letters or the epistles as they are written in their chronology in the book of Acts. We have now come to the point in the book of Acts where Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. And so we're Having a, a very uh, whirlwindy tour here of uh, Romans. Two weeks worth, in fact. We're going to finish it up this week, Lord willing. And as we said last week, the theme of the book of Romans is what? The Gospel. The gospel that's right. Isn't it wonderful that God inspired a single letter just to focus on that one great message? Um, beautifully laid out before us here. And uh, last week we came... To the, uh, actually the real good news. We've been looking at bad news through chapters 2 and 3 until last week where we just ended on, uh, verse 21. We read that. We'll pick up there. But before we do, I was thinking as we were singing, uh, the first hymn, Whosoever Will, isn't it wonderful that the gospel is offered to everybody? Amen. Man, praise God. Uh, I was thinking, the, terrible uh, tragedy down in southern california with the fires and all the poor people who have lost in some cases everything at least physically um and now put yourself in their shoes like the people after katrina uh one at a time you know they're going to be applying to the insurance company fema and who knows what else trying to find contractors architects in many cases they have no insurance no help at all many who will apply uh will get just a limited amount certainly not enough to replace what they had uh praise god the gospel's not like that you know it's a hundred percent offer to every single individual no strings attached isn't that great man praise god so as i said we've come to really the the kernel of the book of romans because in these uh, verses here from 21 really through about uh, 26 paul summarizes in a real mouthful here theological mouthful we're not going to be able to look at it in detail uh the core of the gospel message he not only states the gospel but he explains how it works isn't it great to know not only that you're saved but why you're saved man i remember before i was a christian you know you're going to go to heaven well i hope so you know i think so and looking back i I wasn't going to heaven i was going to hell but we have this kind of vague you know well you look around i think i'm better than most people so i'm okay not realizing that we don't have a a chance without christ but now if you know jesus christ you know why you're saved isn't that great and really uh he explains all of that here (laughs) let's read it together now chapter 3 verse 21 But now, transition from the bad news, everybody going to hell, to the good news. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all, there's the whosoever who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice, by the way, we always use that verse, it's not in the bad news, it's actually in the good news. Is that interesting? Interesting. The reason it's here is because he's reminding us because everybody needs it. It's a good thing it's on all and for all because all have sinned. Uh, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth. That's a very strong word. It's like you can see the hand of God taking the cross with Jesus on it and reaching down and planting it right there in full view of everybody. Saying, look, you want to see my righteousness? There it is. Your sin on my son and what did I do to him? That's how uh, uncompromising my righteousness is. It's a very beautiful picture here. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus beautiful section after having brought down the gavel in verses 19 and 20 saying all the world is guilty before god and it looks the bleakest there's no hope he uh the doors fling fling wide open as he contemplates now the cross of christ where heaven was opened for us really uh as i said we had to print this section in gold in our bibles uh A couple of things, though, we will point out here. The basis for going to heaven, for being right with God, is given right here. Set forth as a propitiation by his blood. There's the basis. That's the only basis for anybody going to heaven. The blood of Jesus Christ. Not me being a good person. Not, uh, you know, well, he understands I'm a sinner and so he kind of overlooks it. None of that business. It's all because of what Jesus did on the cross and nothing else. And then through faith. Well, that's how I make that blood of his shed applicable to me. I believe. I trust. Get a hold of that cross with both hands. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm hanging on to you for all you're worth. If, if you can't save me, I'm lost. I abandon all other hope. And of course, he can save to the uttermost. So there it is. So different from our natural way of thinking, isn't it? You know, basically, I'm a good guy and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And we already talked last week how uh, the cross demonstrates in two ways the, the righteousness of God, as I said, demonstrating his righteousness in showing here is Jesus with my sin. Now, what will God do? He loves his son so much. Surely he will pass over him. But no, his righteousness demands justice. And he judged his son even though it was his son. That's the righteousness of God, you see. But then it's demonstrated also in the fact that this is incredible. Don't don't ever take this for granted, brothers and sisters. You know, before coming to Christ, it was, uh, I hope I'm going to heaven. And that was about as far as our thinking, having no idea what heaven was like. You know, God's gone way beyond that. Not just going to heaven, we're declared righteous. Do you understand how much farther that is? Going to heaven as a law keeper is one thing, which, by the way, nobody's going to do that. He already said that very plainly. OK, look at verse 20 in case you wonder. But we will be there righteous with the righteousness of God. I mean, we're going to belong there. That's the idea. Isn't that great? Man. That's what it means when he says there in verse 23, justified, declared righteous by him. I've said it many times. Beautiful type in the Old Testament in the Tabernacle, of this whole picture of the dual role of the righteousness of God, and it's found in um, the hanging. We'd call it a fence. It's the white linen fence that went all the way around the, the Tabernacle enclosure, six cubits high, nine feet. And and you can imagine, as you you would be somebody wandering through the desert or something, you come across the tabernacle, sitting out there in the wilderness. And as you get closer, you see this beautiful, white, nine-foot-high linen fence going all the way around. It's it's a picture of the righteousness of God, you see, keeping us out, blocking the way. Because I'm a sinner, and He's righteous. And the two don't mix. So there's the righteousness of God, inviolate, unbreakable. But then as we go through the gate, which is a picture of Christ, and go by way of the bronze altar, a picture of the cross, we come inside, and if you were to stand inside and look around, you know what you'd still see? That fence. It's beautiful. It was it wasn't torn down to get me in. It was we didn't break it. It's still just as inviolate and beautiful and pure as it ever was, you see. We got in through the cross where the righteousness of God was not compromised. That's the idea. Isn't that beautiful? And isn't it great now to be able to look around and see that white fence still standing? Man, that whispers security to me. I don't know about you. I'm In a way, we could say we're kept by the righteousness of God because it was preserved. That's why he says here in um, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, here we come, all we do is believe in the cross. Man, what happened to the law? Are we throwing it out the window? That's terrible. Well, if we had come basically saying God's going to put the good on this side and the bad on that side, that would be violating the law. That's a bunch of baloney. You don't do that with human laws. You don't do it with God's law. If we said, you know, he understands I'm a frail sinner. We are but dust and all that stuff, you know, and so he kind of overlooks it. That would be violating the law of God. All of our ways, Yes. You come up with any of them outside of Christianity, so-called. The Christian cults, Catholicism, Mormonism, JWs, Buddhist, Shintoism, Hinduism, all the isms, Confucianism. Every one of them violates the the righteousness of God, does, does damage to it. Only God's way preserves, upholds, in fact. What does he say? We establish the law By the gospel, the law of God is established. Why? Because it demanded a payment, a just punishment for my sin. And it got answered on the cross. Jesus answered for it. And so the righteousness of God is preserved. The law of God is preserved. It's just demands are met. So through the gospel, no, the law of God is not violated or laid aside. All other ways do that, but not, not God's way. Man, it's preserved. It's held up high. Okay, uh, now chap, uh, chapter 4, uh, he really focuses in on now this idea of justification. The the going beyond just getting to heaven, God saying now, okay, you're righteous. And not just generally righteous, you have my righteousness. And uh, Paul refers to Abraham in the Old Testament to support that really it's not a new concept. You see it back in the life of Abraham, and it's wonderful. He uses two kind of arguments to show it. The main one, of course, is uh, this wonderful uh, verse in Genesis. Whenever I read this verse, I just, I'm amazed. It's quoted here in verse 3 of chapter 4. Here we are in Genesis. We're barely beginning the Bible, way back in ancient times. And you would think, uh, okay, that's the Old Testament sacrifices and the law and all that stuff. You're not going to find anything like the doctrine of justification there. And there it is. Look at that. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Man, isn't that great? God knows what he's doing. I'll tell you, you're not going to find another book like this. He inspired Moses to write that thousands of years before Christ. By the way, you will not find in the Old Testament, this may surprise you, God ever saying about an individual that they are righteous. He uses other words like job he's what he's upright he uses other words to say that generally speaking you can't bring a charge against them humanly but he doesn't use his word they are righteous because they weren't except here it's the only place where god actually says someone is righteous and the way they're righteous is through faith isn't that great man the bible is so consistent Okay well I said there were two things the other the other wonderful argument in uh, chapter 4 that must have blown Jews away uh, whoever heard Paul uh, share it with them was that uh Abraham is one of their model citizens you know besides Moses and uh Paul says you know what when God said he was uh, that Abraham was declared righteous when did that happen before or after he was circumcised which Jews made such a big deal about and they would think, yeah, they would think, well, uh, it must have been after, because that's how he got righteous, one of the ways. Paul says, uh-uh, it was before he was circumcised. Little little detail there, sure God did it the right way, huh? <laughs> also in this uh, chapter, he takes up the subject of uh, boasting, and I, I love it. It, to me, there's almost satire in here, irony, like the passage about the idols we read before. Because uh, he says, where's where's boasting then? It's excluded. Why? Because of the grace of God. You think about what he's saying there, think about it. Now, I mean, I can speak about this openly now that uh, I'm not going to heaven because of what I've done. But uh, before I came to Christ, I would have hoped there would have been because of what i had done. Can you imagine being in heaven? And you're there because you earned it. And so here you are in heaven looking around, you know. Number one, you don't owe anything to God. Do you? You did it all yourself. You know, you you can walk around. Hey, man, I'm a self-made man or a woman. You know, I got myself here. Can you imagine that now? Let's be, it's so silly. Not going to be any boasting like that. The boasting is going to be this God forbid that I should boast save in the cross of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's going to be the boasting in heaven. We're going to be pointing to the throne constantly. Chapter five uh, is the first part of it is really a transition section. We're not going to go through it. <laughs> but he's transitioning from justification. We're going to use a couple of theological words here. Justification, which is simply God declaring us righteous. And the whole basis for doing that, the cross. That was the first four chapters. Now he's going to transition to sanctification. Simply being, now we're set apart to please God. Now that we're saved, we're justified. Now let's live a, a holy life. And, and how does that happen? And does God help us in any way? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. Yes, he does. In fact, we've only begun looking at the work of the cross when we talk about uh, answering the law. So many other things happened on the cross which we wouldn't know unless God had told us. But in the midst of this transition section, um, is this really unusual part here, 12 through 14. 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless death reigned from adam to moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of adam who was a type of him who was to come yeah let me tell you there is hidden treasure here folks don't look like it it's kind of like a geode you ever seen a geode no, no geode anybody know what a geode is oh come on geode you've seen them in museums or uh the fair yeah okay now, now now it dawns geode if you were to see a geode before it's broken yeah, they tend to be kind of oval around shape there's a rock and they're ugly as a mud fence i mean they're they, you'd think oh okay what an ugly looking rock but if you're a geologist and you know what's going on you very carefully can tap around it break it in half and you open it up and inside it just knock your eyes out it's so beautiful now you know what i'm talking about right crystals often purple or or clear or red or green just beautiful and you never would have guessed it uh starting on the outside and then uh going on the inside that's that's a geode on the outside is all this ugly stuff and on the inside is all this uh beauty well verses 12 through 14 are like that you read them and you go huh in fact, it almost sounds redundant. It sounds like he's repeating himself. And yet, let, let me read a quote to you. Louis Berry Chafer was the, one of the original presidents of Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote a uh, work on theology like this. Great work. It's really devotional. And when it comes to um, soteriology, salvation, he has a quote in there. He talks about these three verses. And he's quoting, actually, a previous uh, a theologian, W.H. Griffith Thomas. And he says this, listen. If you wish to know whether a man is a theologian, turn to his Greek testament, and if it opens up its own accord to the fifth chapter of Romans, and in particular he's talking about this, and you find the page worn and brown, you may safely set him down as a devotee of the sacred science. All right, well, don't worry, you don't have to be a theologian. But there is some truth in that. There's more here than meets the eye. He is introducing the idea that we would never know unless God had told us of what's sometimes called identification truth, but it's better known as federal headship. How many have heard of that concept, at least? Okay. Federal headship. We wouldn't know this unless God told us. But the idea is that there are actually in history two individuals who are federal heads, heads of a whole family tree of people the first one is adam and every person begins in adam you know that in adam that phrase is found in the bible for example first corinthians as in adam all die so in christ all shall be made alive in adam now you didn't feel like you were in adam and i didn't either but we were positionally and very really we were in adam the moment we were born Here's the really unusual part, but it gets good, so hang in there, all right? What he's saying in these verses is that everybody died from Adam to Moses, but there wasn't a law given during that time, so why did they die? What was was the penalty? Why did they die? And he says they died because, ready, they sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, where was the whole human race at that point? Well, in Adam. Now, we don't think that way, but that's God's dealings. That's the way it really is. So when he sinned, not just these people, but I sinned in Adam. I participated with him. That's why I die physically. That's why we die physically, because we sinned with Adam when he sinned. Now, that's not going to be true of everybody as far as, you know, I was in my dad or my mother. It's only federal heads where this applies, and Adam is the first one. Sounds kind of unfair at first, doesn't it? You know, hey, I wa- If I was there, maybe I would have done something different, you know? Well, first of all, it's real. You can't undo it. It's just the way it is. So there's no sense whining about it. But not only that, there's something wonderful that's gonna come out of this. (laughs) So that's our position in in Adam. Before we're saved, and in fact, if you never get saved, that's the only, (laughs) that's the only wandering place you have is in Adam. You don't get it, you don't get any farther than that. And, and you're going to die in Adam. But there's a second Adam. And the second, second Adam, the second federal head, Jesus is called the second Adam, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the other federal head. And what he's going to build up to here now in chapter 6 is a whole new thing we never would have thought of, that when we get saved, we are placed into whom? Christ. So we're familiar with that concept. We're in Christ, aren't we? We were in Adam. We are now in Christ. Second federal head. Only You didn't do it, by the way. God did it. Okay? Only God can do that. And it's very real. This isn't just theology. Let me tell you how real it is. When you were placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, something happened. You participated with Christ in something that he did, just like you had previously participated with Adam. You know what you participated in? His death, his burial, and his resurrection. Isn't that great? Man, I never would have known that unless God had told me. Why did he do that? Think about it. I think some Christians really believe that all we have to the Christian life is we're, we're saved by the marvelous gospel, praise God, and now to live the Christian life, the source of the power and everything else comes from the fact that I'm motivated now by love for Christ nothing else what's wrong with that picture I'm still the same guy Do you understand I'm still the same old unregenerate Rick unless God does something I'm gonna have just a bigger struggle pleasing God as I ever did I may have a new motivation but that's not gonna get me anywhere so not surprisingly God did another work on the cross and he, he describes it in chapter 6. We died in Christ. Our old man, he says, is crucified with Christ. That old nature that loved sin and didn't want to please God. He's weakened. He's uh, hampered. He's hamstrung. He's not annihilated. would be nice if he was. But then, where's, where's the big deal about pleasing God? There's no choice then, you see. So he weakens the hold of sin by crucifying our old nature with christ isn't that great man not only that he goes past that and creates a new person the moment you were saved the same god that spoke the worlds into existence did another new act of creation he created a new you whenever you believed on the lord jesus jim jesus created a new person at that point isn't that great who didn't exist before everyone in here who knows jesus christ a new you came into existence the moment you trusted Christ, and that new you is described in Colossians three and in ephesians four it's a, it's a nature that loves God, that wants to please God, has nothing to do with that old nature. you see, in fact, you know what he says about the old nature that we still have, but is weakened. He says he grows corrupt. It tells you he's getting worse, even as a Christian, so forget the old nature, he's useless, okay. But the new man was created in holiness and righteousness, he says. And it's the new man where you you have the desires, along with the Holy Spirit prompting you to please God and serve him. So God not only took care of our sin problem, he also did something on the cross through the death of Christ to address our ability to please him and obey him. Isn't that great? Man, there's so much to the cross. Well, he doesn't quit there. There's even more. In chapter 7... Something else was accomplished in the death on the on the cross, in Christ's death on the cross, in particular in my death in him, and it's this. And now when I tell you, you may be underwhelmed, but if you think about it, you realize what a big deal it is. On the cross, because I died in Christ, I died to the law. The, the connection of the law of God with me is severed forever. Man, that is so good. You know, you couldn't do that. You and I were accountable and responsible and answerable to the law of God. And what a burden, huh? Before Christ. But when you get saved, because you died with Christ, you died on the cross with him and you died to the law along with it. God folds that into the death as well. So it's broken. Isn't that great? The law of God is no longer hanging over me. I am free now to serve the Lord with my whole heart ingratitude and i don't have to worry about the law anymore it's completely canceled for me now it doesn't mean the law is not good he in fact he takes that issue the law is a good thing and in fact the principles in it are just as applicable but as having to answer to it judicially now all gone no more boy that's liberating praise god okay so a lot was accomplished in the cross of Christ and so much more. But these are kind of like the, the big three. <laughs> then chapter eight. <clears throat> By the way, it, it, technically speaking, Paul's not done with the gospel, is he? Isn't this still good news? <laughs> There's just so much more to it than we ever would have imagined. Here we are with our paltry, you know, someday I'm going to go to heaven, I hope. And and then we really get saved and we find out, my God, just opened up heaven and poured out blessing after blessing. Chapter 80 takes on the Even God did even more now to uh, help us live uh, a life pleasing to him. And that is we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And in this chapter, there are no less than seven provisions, seven blessings that we have. And it's not all of them, by the way, through the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Number one, first of all, he's, he's a mark of ownership he sets us apart as belonging to god now i look around this room i don't know who knows jesus christ i really uh, i'm 99 percent sure not everybody in here is going to heaven it's black or white by the way there's no gray okay you either know jesus christ and you're saved or you don't know jesus christ it's that simple but the lord knows them that are his and if we had a particular kind of uh, glasses or, or goggles, we could look and if we could see each true believer here is entwelt by no less a person than God himself. Think about that. God the Holy Spirit is living inside each believer, but he is not living inside of each unbeliever here. But there are those who do see. There are angels attended on this meeting right now. Did you know that? Not the flappy, fluttery, you know, woo with a wobbly halo and all that stuff. We're talking about great, powerful beings here, spiritual beings. And uh, there's several, I, I'm convinced, every time Christians get together. It says that we're a testimony to the wisdom of God in Ephesians, the church, as we assemble and come together this way. What must they see as they look? They, they can see right away. They know who's indwelled by God and who isn't. Do you understand? They're spirit beings. Would it be cool to have the vision of angels and see? Mark of ownership. Second thing, verse 14, He guides us. The third one, verse 13, He empowers us. Fourth, uh, verse 14, He marks us out as the children of God. Verse uh, 16, He reveals our sonship to us individually. Isn't that great? It says, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit. That's the Spirit of God communicating to me as a believer that I am indeed a child of God. Isn't that great? To know that? To have that testimony of God the Holy Spirit? The sixth thing is verse 23. He is the down payment until our final redemption the, the holy spirit can you imagine god himself being a down payment but he is i'm saved but i'm not fully saved does that sound like heresy no i'm not in heaven yet you see the transaction is not complete i have been saved from the penalty of sin and daily uh off and on i'm saved from the power of sin i, I wish it was 100 percent of the time it's getting better but the, the last part, say from the presence of sin, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Nobody is. It's a promise that hasn't happened yet. And the uh, guarantee that we can look to and know for sure that he's going to fulfill that promise is the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. That That's a pretty good uh, sign that he means business, isn't it? And then finally, uh, verse 26, he even prays for us, God, the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't pray like you and me. It says he prays, listen to this, with groanings that can't even be uttered. Wow. He, he's, fervent, he's a fervent prayer. And he, he prays for you and me. Okay, well, there's so much more. Uh, it, Romans doesn't exhaust itself uh, it, the subject of all the blessings of God we have in the gospel through the work of Christ. But these are some of them. Okay, um, chapters 9 through 11. Now, we've gone over this one recently because we referred to it when we were in Acts. 9 through 11, Paul takes up the subject. Well, what about the nation of Israel? And it's wonderful reading this section because here's Paul, a Jew. And you know that when he first got saved and all these things began to fit together and God had begun to reveal with him just exactly what happened on the cross and who Jesus was and so on, Paul had to work through in his own mind how he must have felt about his own people and the nation of Israel. Certainly, we know as a Pharisee, his concept of God and the Messiah before encountering Christ was typical of any Pharisee or or Orthodox Jew at that time. And that is there is this promised one that's coming and he's going to deliver us. From our earthly enemies and oppressors, he's gonna, uh, rule from Jerusalem, and Israel's gonna be the head of the nations. Earth, all earthly stuff. Right, Noed? Okay? Man, has this world been turned upside down or what? Because he realizes how tiny his focus was in, in the workings of God. Thank God he had a lot bigger plan than sending an earthly ruler for the Jews. If that were all it was, well, then we might as well close up shop, turn off the lights and go out and have a good time. Huh? Man. God had a lot more in mind than sending a Messiah to rule over the Jews. He had a plan to send His own Son, God the Son, to save the whole world from sin and give them an eternity with Him. That's a little better, don't you think? Man. Praise God. So here, I am a Gentile, and I can talk to you about this stuff. And so Paul, in thinking through all this stuff and revisiting where he'd come from and, and the great things that God has done, he has these wonderful chapters here where he just pours his heart out, talks about his longing over his, his, his uh, people. <coughs> and he ends up declaring plainly, if you want a place, by the way, to answer all millennials, where they say, what does it say in the Bible that God's not through with the nation of Israel? Turn them to Romans 9 through 11, in particular chapter 11. You're not going to find a plainer statement than that. And in fact, a reason for it. Because Paul ends up saying uh, God has to follow through on his promises to the nation of Israel because of the promises he made to the fathers. He can't lie. He has to do what he said he would do. Okay, and uh and we we looked at fifteen and sixteen last week we We came in the back door, remember, because that was a section when we saw that it was clearly written uh, from Corinth. So the remaining chapters twelve through fourteen, not surprisingly, are application. Paul would be remiss, God would be remiss in working through Paul in laying out this immeasurable container of blessing. And then not say something like, uh, you know, in light of that, maybe it might be a good idea now to think about living for God. What do you think? Probably a good idea, huh? And that's what he does. Of course, he says it in a much more beautiful way than that. He starts off by saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is, and what an understatement, your reasonable service i think that's right huh wow and in fact it it uh astounds me that he even has to say i beseech you he shouldn't have to beg us to do that do you think man and uh we're not going to have time as uh, as and as in all the other chapters to go through each section here much of it is terse little statements one verse commands some of them are three or four (coughs) the longest section on a single subject is chapter 14 and a little bit into 15. So uh, one would think that maybe Paul had heard that there was a little bit of a problem uh, among the Roman believers because he takes so long on it. And it's the subject that's also taken up in 1 Corinthians. The idea of the weaker and the, and the stronger brother. That is matters of uh, moral indifference. Subjects in which there is liberty for Christians to live within a, a range of behavior. For example, the classic example is meat offered to idols. Some believers felt that they could eat it. They had no conscience against it. Other believers were petrified with the concept of eating meat offered to idols. And Paul doesn't come down and say, no, you shouldn't do it. He says, either one's okay. The question is, what does the conscience of the eater or non-eater say? If they feel before God they can do it, then it is not up to the one brother to criticize the other. That's the key. And I can't tell you the heartaches and church divisions that have arisen over this very issue. So don't think it's an old, dead issue. It is very much alive to this day, brothers and sisters. Churches today are still being split because uh, somebody gets a holier-than-thou attitude and says, look, you shouldn't be doing that. It's an, it's an area of liberty. And they accumulate a following within the church until pretty soon. You can see the fault line running right down the middle of the church. Until finally, it takes some little event, and it doesn't take much, crack, and the church splits. So it's a very serious issue. So, And the principle is, don't don't judge your brother, first of all. Don't treat them with contempt. Don't flaunt your liberty in front of them in order to stumble them. And don't uh, force them. Don't push it on them. Just, you know, have your liberty to yourself. That's the idea. Every one of them. Think of the other brother or sister. That's the idea. As believers, that should be one of our fundamental working rules, right? Thinking of others first. Let each esteem other better than himself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And so it applies here as well. Okay. (sighs) I actually, I I wasn't going to do this because I didn't think I'd have enough time. Amazingly, I do. (coughs) There are so many ways of studying the Word of God, so many levels, so many ways the Bible fits together. The book of Romans has a wonderful theme in it that is really throughout the Bible, and um, it takes on, really, probably one of the biggest questions you could ever ask. What is, what is the possibly the greatest purpose of God in everything that He does? Did you come up with a single purpose well the answer is yes it's throughout the Bible that's close yeah um, God think about it a second before there was anybody or any creation there was just God okay now as soon as you hear that you get boy that's a lonely picture no it's not <laughs> did you know that God doesn't need us he doesn't need anyone or anything and in fact, to be quite honest, uh, there would be a shortcoming in God if somehow there needed to be a universe or planets or people or angels. Right? He, what's his name? I am. That's what that's saying. I am self-sufficient. And so, ever since eternity passed, there was just God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Perfect communion, perfect fellowship, perfect love, perfect harmony, and it was a complete picture. And it should have gone on like that forever, really. There was nothing wrong with that. (coughs) It's not an incomplete picture. But in his grace and his kindness, this God created something apart from himself. Began with angels. This physical universe came next. And then, to top it off, a second order of spirit beings, people. You and me. Now, These two orders of spirit beings, the emphasis on the word spirit, were created for one purpose. Think about it. If this God existed and he self-contained, needs nothing. If he were to create other beings that are spirit beings like himself, why would he create them? It doesn't take much to realize for only one reason. It's not to go off and party or play Nintendo or have a good time without him. It's for one reason that they may know him, the only true God. That's it. By the way, I answered a big question for you. Maybe you've been wondering, why am I here? I just told you. That, you go out and try to answer that out. You go stand on the corner of uh, uh, Broadway and, and, and 41st in Oakland, and you just ask people as they go by, why are we here? And write down the various answers you get. That, I just answered that for you. You're here to know God. That's it. You were created. They they praise him in Revelation for that purpose. For by you and for you and for you were all things created. Colossians it says the same thing about Jesus. For him, that's it. We're created for him. It's a lot more fun than a Nintendo game, by the way. So, in this uh, working out of this purpose of creating this order these orders of spirit beings to know him he then proceeds to reveal himself to angels and people you can't do that in a moment god's infinite and he's perfect okay and so that's the great purpose of god very simply these these people and these angels that he has created for this one purpose of knowing him now he set about the task to allow their finite little capacities to begin the process of taking him in and appreciating him and knowing him and in eternity it will never end okay we're talking real stuff here that's what it's all about now God uh, is a person I don't mean you know human like us but he's a person he has uh, personality traits we call them attributes he has patience. He loves. He has anger. He's holy. He's righteous. He he uh <coughs> is merciful. <coughs> and so, he has, over the ages, revealed these things about him in the things that he does. And the things that he says. Okay? We're still just scratching the surface. But, um, that is... Really, the great, if you want to hang everything, your theology on one great purpose of God, that's it, to reveal himself to his creation. That's it, okay? And the two great acts that he did are probably the two greatest events in which he revealed himself, the first being creation, where he revealed so much about himself, and continues to to this day, by the way. And we are still discovering more than we can assimilate about the glory and the greatness of God in creation. Okay, we realize now we haven't even scratched the surface yet. The the glories and the beauties of creation and the God who was behind it all. Okay. but the second and certainly the greatest single event, the greatest single work of God in revealing himself was, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we could go on and on about this and the cross. God revealed so much about himself there from his love to his anger, from his righteousness to his uh, mercy. You could go down on the list. Almost every one of them were revealed in a way he could never reveal in any other way. Imagine, we think, well, what's the big deal here? Look, how can you see the love of God? Think about it. How do you see love in me or another person? It's only when we do something. You don't just kind of look at God, you know, oh, there's the love over there, you know, right there. There's love, you know, it's not like that. He has to do something. So to demonstrate his love, his love is so great. It's a lot greater than ours. We, we show love by loving people that are lovely. Don't we? We love people who love us. No, we don't even do that. OK, well, some people do. Okay, yeah, that's the love of God. Okay. But human love doesn't naturally stretch there. Human love typically stops at people who are lovable. And you see it when we do that. But God's love is much greater than that. It would, it would have been one thing if He created the angels and the people and He'd loved them. You know, they don't sin. They love Him back. There's a nice little picture and you see the love of God taking care of His wonderful creation. But the point is, God, God's love is much greater than that. So he couldn't show it all just by doing that. So think about what, he, how the extent he had to go to show just how great his love really is. He created an, a race of beings, an uh, uh, order of beings, people. Gave them a free will, let them do whatever they wanted. We got to the point to where when he came and visited us in human form, we hated him. In fact, we murdered him with glee. We were jumping for joy, taunting him, mocking him. Think about it. You see, God could have not not picked a more unlikely picture to show his love than to somebody like that. But that's how great his love is. And so it took that so that when he loved those people, you could see just how great his love really is. And so here he is on a cross. But we're we're past that point even, cuz at that point he's now bearing our sins. My mind is boggling now. And through all of that, while we've tortured him and we're mocking him and he's paying for our own sin, we're 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 casting the worst things into his teeth. He's saying, "I love you." Okay? You follow me? God revealed his love in the cross. Could we have seen it like that any other way? No. It took the cross for God to reveal just how great His love is. Now turn to Romans 5, because that's exactly what Paul says there. When you show something to somebody, when you reveal it to them so that they can see what it's really like, often we use the word demonstrate, right? You get some software, you get a trial version to see what it's like. It's called a demo version. Well, God demonstrated His love on the cross. Romans 5. uh, The even-numbered verses, 6, 8, and 10. Great triplet. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. There's the extremes of His love. Verse 8. But God, there's that word, demonstrates, shows His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... And picture them and us at the foot of the cross mocking and reviling jesus sinners right there there we are while we're still sinners christ died for us god showed his love verse 10 for if we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled we shall be saved by his life four big words there describing the objects uh ungodly without strength sinners and enemies. That's the greatness of the love of God. And so now, you see, we're beginning to understand uh, just this one aspect of the love of God. Well, real quick, let me just show you. See, there's one place where it shows the purpose of God in revealing Himself <coughs> and how He did it. Back in chapter uh, 1, it says in verse... Um, 19 because what may be known of god is manifest revealed shown okay there's this idea again in them for god has shown it to them for since the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they're without excuse so here he shows two attributes that god revealed through his creation his power god has power you know but you can't see it until he does something. And uh, let me tell you, we're sitting here right now in this little room on planet Earth. We have no concept of the depths of this verse here, the universe. If we were to just, in a moment of time, somehow be able to journey out to the sun and past it to other stars in this galaxy and then outside this galaxy to other galaxies and realize that God spoke and out of nothing this whole vast universe came into existence still so vast every time they think they saw the end of it they just see more of it classic example being the hubble telescope where they focused on you know how big a grain of sand is right hold a grain of sand at arm's length and imagine how much of the sky it would block that's how big of a patch of the sky they focused on for 10 days on the hubble telescope a time exposure over uh, little quadrants (coughs) they knit it together it's a classic picture And they have this picture of a grain of sand of the sky. And they were hoping that when they developed this guy, that they would see the last galaxy, the edge of the universe. (laughs) Uh, You've got to see the picture because there are only three stars in this picture. They chose a place where there won't be any because they they would blur out the, the image, you see. So they found a place where there's only these three little tiny stars. And so you've got this picture of nothing but galaxies thousands of them whirlpool smudges every color of the rainbow different sizes and shapes, and they go on forever you don't see any end to it and that's the deepest point we have been able to visually penetrate and all it says is you ain't seen the end yet power yeah because not only did he create that by speaking he now sustains all of it by the word of his power and his godhead what does that it just means that he's god we because of the beauty and the uh organization and the design in creation, yeah, we know there's a God behind it. Even the most primitive third world tribes people know that there's intelligence out there because of the beauty in creation. Last one. Uh we already looked, by the way, at chapter three. God on the cross demonstrated his righteousness. He He's righteous, but you haven't seen it until you look at the cross and you just see how. Uh perfect and pure it is when you see the Son of God answering for my sin and God not sparing him. He demonstrated his righteousness, it said. Well, the last one is uh, chapter, I believe it's 11. Um, I'll just uh, give it, it's either 9, 10 or 11 here, let me look. <coughs> Yeah, 10. Uh, Pardon me. Chapter 9. We're there. Uh, Verse 22. Another verse here on God revealing himself. What if God, wanting to show his wrath... you understand that? Wanting to show his wrath. And to make his power known endured with much long-suffering, that's the third attribute listed there, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Two more attributes, mercy and glory. It's telling us there that God wants to reveal his whole self to us. You know, it's funny, Christians are sometimes, I think, almost embarrassed about the, uh, the wrath of God. You know, Oh, the wrath of God. Yeah, I know he gets mad sometimes, but, uh, you know, I can't explain it. I'm sorry, the wrath of God is just as pure, righteous, and holy, and right and correct as the rest of the attributes of God, including His love and His mercy. You know that? And so, if God's going to reveal Himself, He is going to reveal all of Himself. And it's interesting to me that there are three scenes of worship in the book of Revelation... Where the 420 elders are falling down and the other, uh, creatures are worshiping God. And we're so familiar with the first two. Chapter 4, which is essentially creation. They're praising Him for, all, for by Thy will all things haven't been created, haven't were and are created. Chapter 5, is what? Look at me. What's, what are they praising for God for in chapter 5 of Revelation? second great act the cross yeah the cross okay that's cool we understand that you see how this fits in with what we've been talking about here are god's creatures worshiping him because they see him for who he is and they're talking about how all they saw about him in creation then they talk about they praise him for all they see about him on the cross well the other one's in chapter 11 and you never hear that one quoted you know why because they're praising god for his judgment And I'll tell you, man, there's going to be such a hoopla and wahoo in heaven when God finally judges sin once and for all, and it's done away with. And God will be vindicated. His righteousness will be vindicated. And so, yes, the wrath of God, the justice of God, are just as much a part of God as his love and his mercy. He is a great God, and it's going to take eternity. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, and it's better than any Nintendo game. Trust me. Okay, it's what you were made for. Okay, if if he made you for it, I think it's a pretty good fit. All right. Well, the last one, I'll just close on this. There's another passage like this, and it's in Ephesians, and he's talking about revealing another attribute to us, and it's going to take time. He says that in the ages to come, he might show. There it is again. The exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. but not just general kindness, kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And, uh, as you probably know, the Greek there is, is very beautiful. It's literally as the ages roll one upon another. It's that it's never gonna end. God, we, we cannot take in His kindness to it, to us in one act. It's, it's too great. Isn't it? Man, I'm about to bust up here. He, He is gonna be showing His kindness toward me, towards you brothers and sisters through eternity and it's getting better and better and better and we're never going to get to the end of it that's what he's saying just that one aspect is kindness okay well i'm running out of voice and words uh we're stretching vocabulary and grammar now to try to describe how great god is let's pray father how we thank you for your word lord even though it's just words on a page yet by your spirit we see so much about you in particular lord we begin with salvation through your son who died for us and and lord we're left speechless right there as we begin to realize that it was heaven's best dying for earth's worst what love and lord we agree with the appeal of paul i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice Lord, anything short of that would be a slap in the face. In light of all the great things that you have done, are doing, and will do, Lord, we're the whole realm of nature mind that we're offering too far, far too small. So now, Lord, afresh, we who know you, we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to you. Use us as you would, Lord Jesus, for we ask it in your precious name. Amen.